Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church, and if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, because this message is entitled, Church Hurts. Have you ever been hurt by the church? Many people have. The number one answer as to why people don't attend church anywhere is because it's full of hypocrites. Well, I think that's a cop-out, my opinion. In that response, you can see masked hurt. You see, many people won't set foot inside a church building because of negative experiences they've had when they were younger. And, and doesn't that cause some uneasiness in, in, in you? should because it's a massive contradiction how is it that the group of people who should be the most loving in the world because we know the love of christ how is it that we have a reputation for being the most vicious well it should come as no surprise to you that godly people can do ungodly things just because we as believers have christ that doesn't mean that we aren't still subject to satan's attacks we can still be used by satan to sin against others um, salvation is absolutely critical, but it doesn't mean that we are immune to Satan's manipulation. Much of the time, Satan use our, uses our insecurities and um, deep emotional wounds to hurt other people. In short, hurt people hurt people. And as much as it pains me to say this, I know that Satan has used me to hurt other people. People I loved. For example, about nine years ago, I moved out of the role uh, of being youth pastor, and I became the pastor of this church. And even though I was no longer the youth pastor, I still carried the responsibilities for, for the youth program, and uh, I took ownership of it. And in order to relieve me of this responsibility, we started looking for a youth pastor, and, and uh, I had a friend at school who was interested, and he'd never really been a youth pastor before. He had all these things that he said he'd done with youth, but we hired him as an interim youth pastor, and um, you may know who I'm talking about. You might have remembered him. His name was Tex, or at least he had us all call him Tex. Tex was a, a very complicated guy, and he had difficulty, as I did, seeing me as his supervisor. Um, and this was mostly because I was only 25 year, years old when I became the pastor, and uh, because he was a friend of mine from school. But also, you know, we're equals in Christ. Uh, I'm not superior to him, but, but I was a supervisor. Keep in mind, I'd never been anyone's supervisor up to this point. I had no idea how to lead someone else. And as I stated last week, Aaron bought me a t-shirt that best matched my personality, which said, teamwork is everyone doing what I say. So, I mean, that was very much my personality. Uh, I hope that I've changed over the years, but I don't know. I guess that'd be up to you guys to determine. I, I will tell you that, that Tex, um, he had a hard time distinguishing me as his supervisor and uh, I would tell Tex how I wanted something done. And because he had difficulty seeing me as his pastor and his supervisor and not just his friend from school, he would constantly argue with me. And out of my own insecurity, I took this as a personal challenge. And uh, I would constantly tell him, no, that's not the way we're going to do things. He'd just argue with me all the time. And so I spoke to an individual about my frustration with text, someone in the leadership, and I was given very um, task-oriented advice. You know, there's something that needs to be handled, we need to handle it. And I've, come to sen uh, I've since come to see um, leadership as a, as a people 
oriented role, uh, not a task oriented role. Like we have to, we have to lead people, not just get things done. At any rate, I was advised to write up a personal review for Tex, and um, he had a three month evaluation coming up. And because I was frustrated at him and that he always argued with me, I was honest on this thing. I was brutally honest. And the guy shouldn't have argued with me, and I should have just left it at that. But in that review, I wrote down everything wrong that I saw with this guy. You know, people, the, the youth wouldn't respect him, um, and and it was for reasons. I mean, this is brutal. Let me just say this three month review meeting. It was brutal because we covered things like his his weight and his personal hygiene, and it was so bad. Not only did we refuse to continue employment with him. I mean, Tex had to get up and leave the room several times to compose himself through the anger and hurt feelings. I mean, he was being sinned against. And so I can't blame him at all. At all. And of all the mistakes I've made here over the years, this is the one that I regret the most. It was like one of my first acts as pastor. See, out of my own insecurity as a leader, you know, I'm trying to build something here. You need to do what I'm telling you to, to, to do. Satan used me to wound an already wounded guy. And if he told you this story instead of me, I'm sure he'd leave my name out. Maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But you would secretly despise me for what happened to him. And the thing is, is that I never intended for Satan to use me the way that he did. But because of my insecurity and maybe some of the hurts that I'd already experienced, I hurt Tex. Knowing this about me, I'm almost certain you would consider me a uh, you wouldn't consider me a heathen or, or accuse me of not loving God. I hope you wouldn't anyway. I hope you just settle upon the truth that sometimes godly people do ungodly things. And the truth is, is that even though we belong to God, we're all capable of sinning against each other and people who don't belong to the church. And the reason for this is that we have emotional wounds. We have insecurities that God wants to heal, but we might be unwilling and sometimes God allows us to hurt other people to expose our own pain. Today we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of John and study the first part of John chapter 18. Before we read it, though, I, I just want to direct your attention to something that the Apostle John does in this letter. As he sets out to write an account on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he does something that many people might find bizarre. Um, Naturally, he tells the story, uh, the narrative about Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who gives up his life as a ransom for many and raises the dead on the, from the dead on the third day. However, he also does something kind of weird. He, he intertwines Simon Peter's story into the narrative as well. And I don't believe this is because John was establishing Simon Peter as the Pope who we all need to worship but because Simon Peter was a broken man who found redemption and healing through the person of Jesus Christ. I think he does this for our benefit. Now, I normally spend a lot of time during the message dissecting the text. However, because today is pretty self-explanatory due to the fact that it's a narrative, I hope to spend more time on the application. Let's read John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, and we'll get into it. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. 
Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers and the chief priests of the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered to him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. He said this to fulfill the word which he had spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Father God, we come to you now and just lift up this passage of Scripture. And I pray, God, that you would just be working through this message. Father, we know that the words of Christ are powerful. We know that we know that we fall down like dead men when he speaks. And I, Father, I know that you want to use this passage of Scripture as you have used it in the past to heal us and to restore us, to give us new identity in your Son. And Father, I just ask for that right now. I pray that you would enable us to understand these words. And Father, as we pour over the text, I pray the text would pour over us and that God, um, we could just glorify your name through it. Father, we love you in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are several things that I have found interesting about this passage while studying it. For example, Jesus waits for his betrayer in a garden, which just reminds me of the imagery in the, of the original sin in Genesis chapter 3. But also Jesus tells, uh, uh, John, uh, tells Judas in John 13, what you do, do quickly. Jesus had full knowledge of Jesus' betrayal, and he could have run away if he wanted to. Yet he waits for his betrayer in a place that is well known to him. Scripture tells us that a Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came to arrest him. And when we read that, we attach the imagery of what we commonly get from movies about Jesus into the scenario, and we see like 20 men with torches and weapons. However, a Roman cohort was actually a number used to categorize a thousand Roman soldiers, which means that Jesus very likely had over a thousand men come to arrest him. And what's incredible here is, is what happens when they ask for Jesus. In verse 4, uh, he went to meet this horde of people asking, Whom do you seek? And they answered, in verse 5, Jesus the Nazarene. And what happens next is just absolutely incredible. Jesus answers, I am he. Verse 6 tells us that when he said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, this is a little different from the narrative in which we get from the other Gospels. For in the story of John, we don't see Judas kiss the, uh, his, his kiss of betrayal uh, that identifies Jesus as the one they were looking for, nor do we see Jesus' miraculous healing of the man who lost his ear. But this doesn't mean that these things didn't happen. Just that John is focusing on the aspect of the story that the other Gospel uh, writers aren't. Jesus, or excuse me, John is primarily interested in showing the picture that Jesus is God, and that's why he wrote his account of Jesus' ministry. He says in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, therefore, um, Jesus did uh, also perform many signs in the presence of his disciples, things that are not written in this book, 
but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. So he is actively seeking to uh, show us Jesus as the Son of God. And so that is the point of the story. Not that, you know, that, that he would say the certain things to, to Simon Peter or that Judas would, would uh, you know, he would, he would kiss him or, or that, you know, that Malchus would be healed. It's just so that, they, that Jesus could be seen as God, which is interesting because when they're seeking to arrest Jesus, they, when Jesus asks them who they're looking for, they, they respond, Jesus the Nazarene. Uh, not Jesus the Messiah. They, they're saying the man they called Jesus. And Jesus responds, I am he. And for some reason in, in Scripture, they fall backwards, which is kind of odd, don't you think? I mean, if there's a thousand men standing around, why would they draw back? Why would they fall down? That doesn't make any sense. I think the reason why is because when Jesus says, I am he, what he actually said is translated from the Greek, ego Amy, which which both words mean I am. So roughly translated, Jesus said, I am, I am. And if you were going to read it uh, the way that we commonly translate the Greek, you would say, I am who I am, or I am that I am. Now already you're probably grinning because you know where I'm going with this. Jesus prayed to the Father saying, I have made your name manifest to them, talking about his disciples. And in the Old Testament, the name of God is a mystery because Moses asked for God's name in Exodus 3 so that he could tell Pharaoh who's sending him. And God responds, I am that I am. So these men came looking for a man and Jesus showed them God. And this next part I understand is a wallerism. And so you're going to have to, uh, you don't have to bear with me or maybe even believe what you want. But I think, however, when Jesus said to them, I am who I am, incredible power came from him that a thousand men who had come to arrest him fell down like dead men. And in verses 7 through 9, Jesus shows how he's a willing sacrifice for the sins of mankind by saying to them again, whom do you seek? Not, they're, they're down, quick run. He says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And so Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. I am who I am. So if you seek me, let these go on their way. And he's talking about his disciples because it says, he said this to fulfill the word of which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I lost not one. And that is incredibly important. We need to come back to that in just a few minutes that Jesus loses not one. Jesus said, uh, you know, he not only faced his accusers with incredible courage, he came forward to protect those who trusted in him, and, and as he does with all of us. Jesus shows his, his, excuse me, his disciples the, the, the greatest love he preluded to whenever he said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so he is laying down his life. He's doing this actively so that not one would be lost. But then we see Peter do what Peter does. <laughs> now, to understand what we're reading here, we have to keep in mind what Jesus told Peter. Jesus told his disciples in John 13 that one of them was going to betray him. And Peter comes forward and expresses his undying devotion to Jesus and tells them that he'll, I'll follow you anywhere, whether it be prison or death. And Jesus looks at Peter and tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. You will deny even knowing me three times, Peter. Now, what I want to spend time talking about today is why I think Jesus 
showed this to Simon Peter, how it is he was able to discern this from Simon Peter. Of course, the easy answer is that Jesus is God. He has perfect knowledge of an individual. But more specifically, I think that God looked inside of Simon Peter and that he knew that he carried around some deep emotional wounds. He carried around some baggage. And we can only speculate on what those emotional wounds were But whatever they were, it caused Peter to want to stand up in front of all the other disciples and say, I'm the greatest follower of Christ. I'll follow you anywhere. Which is why I think he also drew his sword and struck Malchus, cutting off his ear. Jesus looked at at, at those wounds of Simon Peter and knew they would keep him from following Jesus. He knew these wounds caused Simon Peter, a man who loved Christ, to hurt others. To save himself. Which, by the way, I don't believe for a second that Peter was aiming for Malchus's ear. I think he was trying to cut off his head, and because he, he was far from experienced with the sword, he ended up cutting off the man's ear. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus picks up Malchus's ear and put it back on his head, and they heal him. But John doesn't include that for some reason. What I found extremely interesting is why John went through so much trouble to name the high priest's servant. Think about this for just a second. He doesn't name the woman at the well. He doesn't name the man who is paralyzed that Jesus heals, nor does he name the man who later becomes a believer, the man who was born blind. He doesn't spend time learning their names. He doesn't write them down. Yet here he names a man who is simply standing around when Jesus was being arrested, and he got his ear cut off. Why? Why would he name him? Well, I think the answer to that question has to do with Simon Peter again. See, as Peter denies Christ the first and second time, John doesn't name the accusers, yet the third time, Peter is asked if he's a follower of Jesus, and in John 18, 26, it says one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of Malchus, the one whom Peter, uh, whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, Malchus is named to give greater weight to the accusers of Simon Peter for being a disciple, which in turn leads to the greater sin on the part of of denying Christ. I know I saw you there. You cut off my cousin Malchus's ear, right? That was you. No, it wasn't me. I don't know him. You see, Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him. Jesus knew Peter was going to cut off Malchus's ear. And inside the explanation of Jesus being the son of God, Jesus looked inside Peter and knew his inner pain. He knew his emotional wounds, those things that motivated Peter to protect himself. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter did. For he knew how Peter would hurt others. And he knew how Peter was hurting himself. Now Jesus does something here. He talks Peter down in the other Gospels by saying, Peter, put the sword away. Put it back in your sheath. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And here we see Peter, him ask Peter a question. He says, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Several times Jesus has already had this conversation with Simon Peter. One that, uh, one time he told Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things in mind of God, but the things of men. Well, that's kind of harsh, don't you think? Well, not if you understand that emotional wounds keep us from following God. Emotional wounds cause us to try to protect ourselves. And maybe that comes off as we're trying to protect other people's, but really what we're doing So we're trying to protect ourselves from pain. I protect my wife and kids because I'm afraid of losing them because of what kind of damage it would do to me. It's a little selfish, sure, but it's not seen that way. 
The best way I've come to understand how this works is, is by examining a diagram, and I'm going to try to put this up online if, if uh, you want to see it. Whenever we're sinned against, it hurts us. And whenever we get hurt, we naturally take measures to protect ourselves from future hurt, and so what we do is we build up walls around ourselves. And these walls help us to feel emotionally protected from others. You know, they hurt me, but they can't hurt me again. And that can even make us feel strong and powerful. And we entertain the idea that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But in reality, words hurt very much. Walls don't only keep out pain. They keep out genuine interaction with other people. And that's not typically received well by others. And so... That can cause them to say things about us and to repeat the cycle of sinning against us all over again. And because they're sinning against us, and it hurts, we build up more walls around ourselves to shield ourselves from other people. But the real problem is that we begin to lose sight of who we really are and to begin to form our identity within the walls. And that's only one side of the equation. And we have no control over how others respond to us. We have no control over whether someone will sin against us in the future. However, we are given a choice on whether we go back and face our hurt and allow God to heal us or we simply build up more walls around ourselves. And while living inside a fortress might seem appealing, the reality is is that this diagram gets more complicated when we consider that we have no control over how people respond to us and they have no control over how we respond to them. Hurt people hurt people. And while the church can hurt others, we need to see ourselves as those who hurt themselves, who are hurting themselves. You see, we get so obsessed with showing the world how holy we are. And just like Simon Peter who said, I'll follow you anywhere, Christ, to prison or even death. Let the world know that I'm your follower. When in reality, God knows this is simply a defense mechanism to protect ourselves from ridicule and pain and being sinned against. It's, it's to protect ourselves from people seeing what's really going on inside of us. See, we don't want the world to see us broken. We're whole and we're complete and we're followers of Jesus. Yeah. Because if they really saw what was going on inside me, they wouldn't love me. They would criticize me. They would condemn me. If you ever read the book, uh, the third book of the Chronicles of Narnia, then you, you, you likely know this story. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis gives an allegory for how we often respond to hurt and pain. Uh, the kids Lucy and Edmund get to return to Narnia again, but this time their spoiled brat cousin Eustace joins them. And he's a wretched little boy, and, and rather than help out on the ship that sails around Narnia, he just complains the whole time. He acts like a wimp. And they're shipwrecked on an island, and instead of helping to rebuild the ship, Eustace sneaks off where he finds an old dying dragon protecting treasure. And when the dragon dies, Eustace picks up a bangle that he finds in the treasure and he puts it on his wrist, wrist, which causes him to fall asleep on a pile of gold. And when he wakes up, Eustace has been transformed into a powerful dragon. You see, at first, Eustace, he feels overjoyed to be a dragon. Being a dragon, is, is dragons are strong. This helps him feel strong and people cower whenever he lets out a loud roar. Rawr! It makes him feel powerful. And he's even able to use his strength to hunt for food and uproot trees for rebuilding the ship. 
However, when the ship is nearly ready to leave, Eustace can't fit on it. And then he realized that being a dragon isn't so great after all. He realizes he's trapped as being a dragon. You see, while the dragon scales used to make him feel safe, now he's realized that he's trapped inside of them. That is until the lion, Aslan, the, the Christ figure, finds Eustace scratching off at his scales and he's unable to get them off. And Aslan takes over and begins tearing off each one of the scales until finally the dragon is gone and all is left is the boy, Eustace. This, like all the other C.S. Lewis stories, is an allegory to help us see Christ and how he heals us in our pain. You see, when we read the narrative of Simon Peter cutting off the man's ear, we typically think, wow, this guy was strong. What a, what a big, strong guy. He was just trying to protect Jesus, and I admire him for that. However, the sword that he had was just a form of scale armor that, he, that helped Simon Peter feel strong. He, he didn't want to reveal who he really was. He didn't want to lose Christ for, for personal, selfish reasons. He didn't want to reveal that he was really afraid for his own life. Quick, Jesus, run! I'm not running, Peter. What do you mean? Think about this from how Malchus must have viewed Peter. Do you think he saw him as a big, strong guy and said, you know what, you cut off my ear, but I admire you for it? No. He probably saw him as a monster. And when you realize that, you begin to see my point. I've had several times, excuse me, I've said several times, the world doesn't need to see how holy we are. The world needs to see how healed we are. And I realize that that can be pretty generic, so let me try to explain what I mean by this. When we interact with people in the world, we often run across people who have, uh, are guilty of, of terrible sin. For example, we might encounter a man who abuses his wife or a man who molests children. And we might say, that man is a monster. And what we say often gets back around to them and it hurts. They build up walls to protect themselves. That's why they didn't secret. They didn't want anybody to know their secret sin, their, their sin that they found comfort in. For beating my wife makes me feel strong and, and, and molesting children means I'm in control and I'm powerful. What we don't see is a lot of the hurt that causes them to respond the way that they do. They build up walls to protect themselves, but when God works in us, we begin to experience healing and, and knowing that there are none righteous, no, not one. When we see that, we begin to see something different when we look at these people. We see what Christ sees. You see, where the world sees a dragon, a new creation of Christ sees a little boy or a little girl inside the scales, inside the armor, behind the sword. It's only through healing that we can recognize a monster for a broken individual that has built up walls to protect themselves from a like a horrible, critical world. You know, I have a friend who hates the next few chapters of John that we're about to cover because of what happens to Christ in them. I, on the other hand, I love this passage. This is some of my favorite part of the book of John, not because of what happens to Jesus, but because of what happens to Simon Peter. Simon Peter sins terribly against Jesus. And he's going through this process of not only being redeemed, but of being healed through the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus went to the cross 
to drink the cup of wrath that God pours out on sinners. And he did this because when he sees us, he doesn't see a monster who's undeserving of love. He sees a little boy or a little girl who's been continually sinned against and has drawn comfort out of sin because sin might make us feel powerful. And the walls protect us. And so we are, we are impenetrable from being hurt, but we're living a lie because that's not true. And Jesus came that we might not only be made holy, but that we might be healed. And sometimes we're unwilling to go back and talk about the painful things that have happened to us. We don't want to relive them again. The golden rule of dysfunctional homes is that we don't talk about what happened. We pretend that it didn't happen. We just sweep it right under the rug. The only option for survival in a dysfunctional home is to build mental and emotional walls up around ourselves and to adopt an identity within them. And we, we, we survive in that. And we think we need it for survival. That is until Christ arrives on the scene. Jesus not only came to save us, but he came to heal us. And just like he told Simon Peter, he's telling us, sheathe the sword. You don't need that anymore. Christ's sacrifice for us is sufficient to show us deep love. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us towards, uh, towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, do you understand what that means? And it means, it means that God saw us in our sin. He sees us in our walls. He sees us with all of our scales and where everyone else would dismiss us for being a horrible monster that is undeserving of love, Christ died for us. This love, it has healing power because God knows who we really are and he loves us anyway. He died for us to prove it to us. So I say to you, surrender and find healing in this truth that Christ died for us. I know it's hard because we have to relive these painful experiences, but Christ is with us. He will protect us of those which he has given. He loses not one. Now, I began this message by asking if you've ever been hurt by the church, and I'm sure you have. If you haven't, you will. Just stick around. You might even be hurt by me. And just because we are saved does not mean that we don't sin against others. However, the difference is, is because the, re- the, the rest of the world, where it might avoid us because they see a bunch of hypocrites that, is, that you know, that... that they're horrible, terrible people. They say they're supposed to be good and righteous, but they, they hurt other people. The difference between them and us is that we are being healed. And when we find healing, we understand that when others sin against us, it's not because they are monsters, but because they are broken individuals that need healing too. Christ enables us to see people the way that he does. We don't need a victim mentality that we survive in. We need a victory mentality to thrive in. Jesus has given us victory over our pain. He's given us victory over our circumstances. He's given us victory when we are sinned against. He gives us victory over our sin. He's given us victory over this identity that we have formed thinking that that's who we are. And he says, no, I see you. No, not I see you, but I see you. He gives us the promise of a purpose to our pain. 
Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things work to the good for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. He gives us purpose to our pain. What purpose? Our choice today is whether we will surrender our pain over to Christ to be used for his gain. Or if we're simply going to go right back through that process and build up another layer of walls. Hardening our heart against God and hardening our heart against other people. You can't touch me. You can't hurt me. Instead to turn to Christ and realizes he loses not one. He's with us. He protects us. He gives purpose to our pain. So the question we must ask ourselves today is, am I going to continue to fight against God's plan for redemption in and through me? Or is it time to sheathe the sword? Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.